Hello. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I am David Osman, and with me today is James Aitken of Aitken Advisors. Our subject for this podcast, the inflationary implications of ESG and the climate transition, some considerations. The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of high-quality independent research providers from around the world, both macro and micro. Some are stock-specific, some are sector-specific, some are country-specific, many are global, and all are investment-related. Consumers are becoming increasingly focused on ESG investing, not just the environment, but also social and governance matters. This, along with increasing ESG financial regulation, is putting greater pressures on the investment decisions of institutional investors. Given the strong political momentum behind climate change concerns, inflows into ESG and climate-related funds could increase substantially for the foreseeable future. The ESG and climate tsunami has barely begun to ripple through the world economy and the global financial markets. It could be an important feature of them for years to come. To discuss some of the economic and financial implications of ESG investing, and the climate transition, I'm very pleased that we're joined today by James Aitken, who is the founder of Aitken Advisors. James, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to Aitken Advisors and the service that you provide to your various clients. Good afternoon, David, and good afternoon, listeners. Thank you all very much for your time, and thank you to IRF for arranging this conversation. By way of Brief introduction, I've been working in financial markets for almost 30 years. The past, gosh, 22 and a half, almost 23 have been here in London. Many people will always know me as the plumbing guy, which is kind of good uh, because of my expertise that I deployed from late 2006 onwards. I, I don't talk about it too often, but I did work four years at AIG Financial Products with Joe Cassano then went to UBS and from September 2006 onwards, sitting on a foreign exchange desk, tried to tell people everything I knew about subprime and the plumbing and the inner workings of the global financial system, which David uh, turned out to be quite relevant as we all now know. And it got to the end of 2008 and I'd helped a lot of people not lose money and I'd helped some people make a fortune. And the client said to me, well, look, why don't you go and set up your own consultancy? We'll back you. And that was in early 2009, and here I am. Now, of course, you can't be the man with a hammer. You can't go on and on and on about the plumbing forever. You have to be useful to your clients for as long as possible. And it's interesting the the way my business has evolved over the past seven to eight years in particular, not just in who I'm working with, uh, but also in terms of the range of topics I'm discussing with my clients and advising them on. Basically, if I think I can understand something, and I believe it's relevant to my clients all around the world, and I'll come to the clients in a minute, then I'll try to help them think about uh, the particular issue, not just in terms of what's going wrong, but also in terms of what's going right and and how we might wish to position for it. I obviously don't talk about who my clients are specifically, but I have worked not just for the past 12 and a half years under my own banner, but for 25 years with many of the world's largest, most sophisticated investors. And David, all I'm trying to do is be less wrong, 
and help my clients think through what I believe to be the important issues of the day. Look, as, as you know so well, and, and I'm sure listeners know so well, for historical reasons, macro has a connotation of, oh gosh, what could be going wrong? But of course, the distribution of macro outcomes is symmetrical. It's also important to think about what's going right. So just to draw Beth before we get into our topic, I have long worked with many of these sophisticated investors around the world, and I have clients in every jurisdiction, time zone, obviously, and of every description. So it's sovereign wealth funds, the world's largest family offices, pension, insurance funds, mutual funds, long-only investors, equity investors, special situations, distressed debt. I could go down the list, but you get the gist. And, and look, to be blunt, trying to stay you know, half a step ahead of all my clients on key themes of the day is no small challenge. And realistically, if I can keep up with the play, I'm very happy indeed. Now, the growth of ESG investments and ESG regulations has raised the importance of environmental, social and governance concerns in portfolio decision-making. Is this just a passing fashion or a growing trend that should not be ignored as the world struggles towards the net zero target for carbon emissions by 2050? Yeah, David, it's an interesting question, and I and I, I admire the cheeky metaphor you opened with the ESG tsunami, which some people maybe was politically incorrect, and then you said about the ripple, but I think it's totally appropriate. And to set the scene, I've been discussing what I actually also call the ESG tsunami with my clients since late 2018, and try to understand the implications beyond the important and obvious one which is for reasons of virtue signalling or to keep up with the political tempo of the day, if I can put an ESG label on a particular product and charge an attractive fee, I'm, I'm likely to see tremendous inflows. But unlike some of the discussion about central banks, which I'm not diminishing at all, you know, we have these various economic cycles, my thinking would be that the ESG discussion and the climate transition are going to be a structural feature of markets for a long time to come. As we saw in the slightly, uh, well, slightly unsuccessful CAP26 gathering recently, there's no amount of good intentions and there's no amount of money that people are willing to allocate to renewable strategies or to help fund the climate transition. That's, That's all a given because people are falling over themselves to signal their virtue. But then what I've also been thinking about is not just the flow impact of money coming into ESG, but also, hang on a second, if this is going to be a structural feature of markets for many, many years to come, what are the macroeconomic implications that people may not have thought about or don't feel comfortable talking about, lest the the virtue signaling cops beat them up, but what are the portfolio implications of this and might there be some interesting things that come out of it? And during this past couple of months, well, it started back in June, July in the summer, I started giving presentations to specific clients, you know, what, I, what I'd call longer duration clients, so endowments and foundations and family offices, linking a couple of topics together. And as we're discussing here, it was like, okay, what are the macroeconomic implications of the clamour for ESG, the climate transition? And in a time when, well, now better understood inflation problems were percolating. What would be the impact on portfolios and how we think about the world if the supply chain bottlenecks that everyone's uh, concerned about, and we've all been learning about, diminish over the next 12 months, but then we sort of confront head on 
an even larger, more persistent supply shock, which is the climate transition. And, and look, I'll just add something important here. It's very easy to opine in this day and age. It's very easy to talk about what is happening. But as I hope to touch on during our conversation here, okay, everyone can describe what's happening, but we also need to get into so what and now what? You know, what does this mean for our portfolios? So why do you consider ESG, oil and inflation to be three sides of the same coin? Yeah, let's let's think, David, about incentives, okay? So every buy-side firm, whether it be listed or private, is incentivized to, quote-unquote, do something about ESG and the climate transition. I don't think that's up for debate. And some people are doing it better than others. But then, of course, think about all these companies, these businesses that have been around for a long time. Let's, let's call them euphemistically legacy oil and gas producers, non-renewable energy producers who've been able to see for a long, long time that this climate transition was going to hit them in the head, that the political clamour was only going to accelerate, that everyone wants to save the world, which is a noble and, and, and good cause. But at some point, the cost of capital for all these legacy oil and gas firms and all the infrastructure around it would go up. It's not just funding a new pipeline or a new plant. It's like, what's the cost of insuring, uh, you know, tar sands in Alberta? And there's a long list of things where it's all going to get more expensive. So, David, from day one, any thoughtful executive suite, well, let's, let me be precise, not day one, for several years now, every thoughtful executive suite in the oil and gas space has known this is coming and is trying to either reposition or rebrand their firm and be much more disciplined with their capital, particularly in the shale space. And knowing at some point that your cost of capital, cost of refinancing is probably going to go up because people don't want to refinance too much non-renewable energy, then you've got to be really disciplined. And as you're a corporation, whether it be a BP or to use this part of the world, BP, Total, Equinor and so forth, or Shell, where are you going to get the cash flow to ensure that your business can muddle through this transition? And the answer is, ironically, from your legacy oil and gas businesses, right? That's how they're going to fund the transition. But to keep shareholders happy, what you're also going to see is very good supply discipline. And I'll come to the specific example of shale in a moment. David, you're going to see much better supply discipline from oil, oil and gas producers. And I'd add OPEC plus to that. And you're also going to see capital management, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time. So you're just starting to see increased dividends. Uh, from the BPs and others around this world, you're starting to see accelerated buybacks, which is taking a leaf out of other sectors. But you've got really first and foremost, when we we just want to focus on the macro side of this, I think we're going to get much, much larger supply discipline across oil and gas. I know that's a broad sweeping statement, but there's evidence of that already. For example, you look at the elasticity of the US rig count to West Texas crude prices and, and Brent, if you will. And, you know, the elasticity has changed. If we go back five or six years or so, no, actually, let's go back seven years or even eight years. You know, the game in shale was dig a hole, pump it out, use the cash flow, borrow more money, dig another hole. And it was just a levered, you know, levered capex machine that was very, very highly correlated, dangerously so, uh, with energy prices and oil prices. And look, 
from 2017 onwards, investors in these US shale companies said, listen, you've been so ill-disciplined, you've burnt through the best part of $300 billion of capital, no more. You need to tighten up. So it's actually started from 2017 onwards where the shale firm said, hey, we've got to look after our shareholders. We're going to be more disciplined. And then from 2017 onwards, you've got the added incentive for energy producer discipline, which is this accelerating clamour for the climate transition. So we're going to have much tighter oil and gas supply. And I think we've seen some pretty early and strong evidence of that through the course of 2021. And then that brings me to the next point about, well, what's this all mean? What do we do about it? And why is it, why has this got anything to do with inflation? If you'd like me to continue to that point, David. So, so what does the climate transition mean for the inflation outlook and for central banks' monetary policies, both in the short term and in the longer run? Right. So to be clear, we've talked about one dimension so far, which is the discipline that's absolutely necessary from oil and gas producers, okay? Because that's how they're going to survive the transition to, dare I say, climate nirvana or the sunlit uplands of climate nirvana. But then I was also thinking about the other dimension to this, which is, okay, models of inflation expectations, as we've seen this year, are not, may not be fit for purpose or at least still open to conjecture. And it is, to be fair, difficult for central banks to incorporate supply-side shocks into their macroeconomic models. I think we, we know that or at least suspect that. So to be clear, this is not to blame central banks, but perhaps they're struggling to encapsulate and think about the world that we're moving through. But as much as it's difficult to calibrate inflation expectations, as much as it's difficult to model realised inflation with, with great confidence, although we can intuit the general direction of it right now, if I was trying to imagine, David, something that's very visible to the US consumer in particular, as opposed to what they're buying on Amazon, it would be the cost of gasoline when they drive past it every day. And to my way of thinking, and when you eyeball measures of US gasoline prices, and you need to be a little bit careful because there's different tax regimes in different states. So one needs to be a little bit careful when one's making big statements or assertions about nationwide gasoline prices in the United States. But unsurprisingly, and with the 1970s as an extreme example of it, there does seem to be a pretty strong correlation between gasoline prices, pump prices in the United States, and inflation expectations, or at least what people respond when they're asked by the University of Michigan or the New York Fed or others, you know, what do they think about inflation? And we've seen the manifestation of that after the Virginia governor's election, where the Biden administration has totally pivoted and said, oh my gosh, we are so on the nose, we must be seen to be doing something about inflation, gasoline and oil prices in particular, which is the political reality of the situation they're in. Now, David, some people would say, well, the obvious thing to do is to boost supply, remove impediments to new pipelines or energy infrastructure to ensure that the US consumer, aka the voter, has access to a reliable, predictable, low cost of energy, gasoline prices. But the strategy, as we've seen from the Biden administration, is blame business. Businesses must be profiteering, which is convenient, but obviously doesn't address the underlying problem. And to get to your last question, well, okay, so what? What does it mean? Look, at some point, 
these supply chain bottlenecks, particularly out there on the West Coast around San Pedro Bay, and let's not forget all the extra ships that are waiting 100 miles offshore but are difficult to photograph, at some point, maybe over the next 12 months, these supply chain bottlenecks may ease with the obvious impact on goods price inflation, okay? And I think a lot of people are waiting and hoping from that. But what I'm saying is that for a combination of reasons, sure, we'll eventually get through these supply chain bottlenecks, but I would argue that the climate transition means that any energy producer, it is absolutely essential for any energy producer to be extremely disciplined with the amount of oil they supply to markets. I think that therefore the oil price is going to remain well supported. I think gasoline prices are going to remain well supported. So just as we get through goods price inflation, energy inflation, people realise it starts to be more persistent. And I'm thinking not just of potential obvious impacts on oil and gas prices per se, David, but I'm also thinking about in a world of very richly priced assets and low real yields, is there some merit in continuing to look to add to positions in things as obvious as a Chevron, a Mobile, a Hess Energy. You know, look, we can go down the list and I'm sure there's many listeners who know these businesses better than I ever could. But because of the balance sheet management and the capital management uh, that's just getting started by some of these big oil and gas companies, you've got high free cash flow yields, you've got high real dividend yields, and you've got the prospects of capital management for years to come. And who knows, as, as strange as this may sound, rather than buying a negative yielding 10-year tips in the United States and locking in, well, negative real returns, might asset allocators slowly start to re-rate and appreciate and reappreciate, if you will, some of these legacy oil and gas businesses, which may continue to be more than an adequate store of value for the thoughtful investor for a long time to come. And look, to finish on this point, David, I know people might be saying, well, hang on a second. If you say the ESG tsunami is going to ripple through markets or flood markets for years to come and people want to signal their virtue and step back from oil and gas, you know, who's going to buy these legacy oil and gas businesses, even if they agree with your thesis? And I agree with that. It is difficult for many university endowments to take advantage of what I think is a pretty sensible uh, view. Well, I would say that, but I do think it's a sensible view and portfolio risk to, to take. But there are plenty of other people. There are other sovereigns. There are family officers and other investors out there who won't mind picking up some of these legacy oil and gas assets, and you're starting to see that. So look, my takeaway here is that it's not to disrespect the ESG tsunami. It's not going away. It's not to sort of rubbish the climate transition and the clamour to save the world. It's not to rubbish any potential breakthroughs that are going to come over the next decade. I mean, we can imagine some of the fantastic breakthroughs that are going to occur in everything from green hydrogen to, to small modular reactors and so forth. But that's going to take time. And meanwhile, the world is sitting on a low-cost, tremendously efficient source of energy that I think at this particular point in time, remains underappreciated. So when we think about the main implications of all this for asset allocators in the next five years, can China continue to pass the ESG tests for institutional investors who are based in the US and Europe? 
or is China in danger of becoming uninvestable? It's a fantastic question. And as my clients know, it's one that's occupied my mind. Well, the China question and, and what I call CCP malfeasance has, has occupied my mind for three years now and trying to help clients understand that perhaps you don't want to add too much to an Alibaba or a Tencent. You know, we can go down the list, David, of effectively Chinese listed but state-owned enterprises in which Xi Jinping has the golden share. So you'll always be subordinated to him. And it's been an expensive mistake, frankly, for a lot of investors in 2021. And I don't think it's over. But you, your philosophical point is absolutely bang on. How do you reconcile all this endless virtue signaling about the E and the S of ESG? How do you reconcile box ticking on governments? And yet you continue to hurl money at Remnimbi assets. I think it's a very important question. And I would think, and this is what I've been advising my clients, as it becomes clear, well, it should be clear by now, that Xi Jinping just doesn't care what anyone else says or does, and that therefore the West will slowly but steadily be forced to coalesce and respond to his malfeasance. There's been some interesting developments on that in Brussels over the past couple of weeks, but we won't talk about that today. But I'd say the odds of a global coalition willing to be a bit more forceful and, you know, the new German coalition as well. Uh, their, man their manifesto is very interesting on this topic. I think it's going to be much more difficult for the Western investor to mindlessly hurl money at Remnimbi assets. I think they're going to have to do a lot more, let's call it KYC perhaps, or a lot more due diligence. And I would argue that's actually a good thing. But David, I could opine on this. I know many other people have opined on this. I know people like Ray Dalio, the penny seems to be dropping, how horribly conflicted he is. Horribly conflicted. And he's smart enough to probably realise it, even if he can't articulate it in public. But I'm telling my clients, like, look, you know, you could be the best bottom-up investor in China. I, you know, I, I know you've been pro provocative in the best possible way. No market on earth is uninvestable although we hear people say that. But I think people need to be eyes wide open about the political risks they're taking in a fractious Western world, particularly in the United States, of allocating their marginal dollar of capital to a Remnimbi asset, no matter how attractive the real yields might be. And they are attractive, right? So I, I know a lot of people who have had Long ran NIMBY carry trades on all year. It's worked very well. It ticks all the boxes and that's fine. But I'm just saying to people, eyes wide open, because you might be able to catch the odd bounce here and there in an Alibaba, Metuan, but you know, we could go JDs, et cetera, 10 cents. All of which are absolutely astonishing businesses. Absolutely astonishing businesses. But I think one is running very severe reputational risk if one is simultaneously lecturing the world about the E and the S of ESG whilst conveniently overlooking demonstrable appalling behaviour from Xi Jinping and his Communist Party thugs. James, many thanks for this very interesting insight into the service that is provided by Aiken Advisors. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discover some of your other asset allocation ideas and your short-term trading ideas. 
The Independent Research Forum is offering a brief trial to the Aitken Advisor service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available from the Independent Research Forum on request. Thank you for listening to this IRF podcast with James Aitken of Aitken Advisors. <laughs>